Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you feel like your allergies are having a comeback tour and you want relief quickly, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny, and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. Nate, from time to time, we hop in the musical time machine. And we're going to do that right now. We're going to hop in. Okay, I'm in. We're going to go into the past. The recent past. Should I buckle my seatbelt? It's advised, but you're going to departicalize either way. Here we are. We've arrived. Yeah. It looks pretty similar to 2021. i got to be real. And there's a song playing in the background. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you remember this one? Oh, yeah. This rings every bell. This takes me back to a simpler time. A time before I owned a smartphone. (laughs) <laughs> before I had 17 gray hairs. A time before our show even existed, when we were just fiddling around on bluegrass instruments. That's right. You said Simpler Times. That was the name of our band. Oh, we yeah. were in San Francisco. And in the background was Gautier's Somebody That I Used to Know featuring Kimbra. No, you didn't have to stop so long. Have your friends collect your records and change your Still slaps. The song is a hit. It was a hit. It actually, even though this was released in 2011, it won the 2013 Grammy Award for Best Pop Duo slash Group Performance, as well as Record of the Year. And frankly, I think this is a very surprising hit. Hmm. Now that it's 10 years past, I want to revisit it and look at how did this unlikely hit happen? And speak with Kimbra, who, after winning this award, had all the doors open to her, and she chose a fairly unlikely path. Mm. Okay, I'm intrigued. I guess I have maybe taken this song for granted a little bit, so I'm I'm eager to sort of put it under the microscope and figure out why it's such a surprising smash. Okay, so let's reparticleize in the future. Think about it from uh, a little bit of distance. I have to pee. Is that a normal reaction? Just give it. Okay. Oh, it passed. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Somebody I used to know. All right. So my first statement here is like, this thing shouldn't have been a hit. Why not? What do you have against this this lovely <laughs> decade-old duo? Leave Goche alone. Why, why shouldn't this have been a hit? Well, I think just musically, it's got some bizarre characteristics. Okay. If we just go right to the beginning, the first thing we get is this two-chord little vamp. Like, not a lot going on. And it's this kind of curious sample of Louise Bonfa's Seville. Luis Bonfa, the Brazilian writer and guitarist who composed the soundtrack for Black Orpheus, among other 
yeah. successes. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe but the point is like this 1967 is a little bit of a deep cut. I didn't get the reference. And this sample, I don't know. It's like I don't immediately get like hot beat coming out of it. Instead, we get this just like, you know, little plunkety, dunk, plunkety, dunk, curio. Dunk, dunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then enters in a, is it a marimba? It's not a marimba. What is it? It's a glockenspiel, I believe, or a xylophone. And don't ask me what the difference is because... I know, but I won't tell. It's a secret. <laughs> but I do know, I do know to anyone out there wondering, but I won't reveal the difference <laughs> on air. Whatever it is, what is the melody that the glockenspiel slash xylophone slash marimba slash toy piano slash we don't know what it is is playing? Dun, 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 da, 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 something like that? Uh, listen a little more closely. Okay, hit me. Yeah, that's what I sang. But I see what I think what you're getting at here is that it's like kind of childlike. It's like something that you would, if you walked into my fourth grade music class, you would hear a, a bunch of like kids playing this, perhaps. And singing maybe Baba Black Sheep directly over it. Whoa. <laughs> Oh, man, are you a Baba Black Sheep truther uh, with this song? <laughs> no. I mean, I don't I've, know, man. I've, I don't want – I'm, I'm afraid. I don't want you to dip your toe into that crazy <laughs> Baba Black Sheep Gautier conspiracy world, man. I don't know if you'll, you'll ever come back. It's a new dad. I have no beef with the kids' music. But I'm just saying it feels like a little too silly to be a pop hit. And I have one more reason why I think – this song should never have been the smash that it was. Okay. It is a really long build of Gautier complaining about this relationship. We don't get to a chorus until like way past a minute into the song, and we only get two choruses. When, okay, wait, when does the chorus hit? I need to know. Give me a timestamp. All right, so get this. So first we have like verse one comes in after a nice little intro. Yeah. Now and then I think of when And he's like brewing over this old relationship. Totally. It's very right? sparse. And he's like, yeah, he sounds a little bitter for sure. Doesn't sound like he now and then thinks about the relationship. Sounds like maybe from time to time. <laughs> and then there's like a whole instrumental section after the first verse. And we get a second verse. You can get addicted to a certain kind of that, okay, yeah, that is odd. I mean, especially now in 2021, you would never get a, two verses back to back. That's unheard of. No, no, this is, and this is a minute and 10 seconds in. So you're like, when does the chorus hit? Let's see, minute 30 seconds, minute 33 seconds. <laughs> Minute 33? Okay, that's, that's, yeah, that's wild. That's a long-ass time till the chorus hits. It is a slow build. It's an eternity in, in pop years. Fascinating. And this song has billions of plays across various streaming platforms. I guess we're more, we're more patient listeners than we give ourselves credit for. I think that's a beautiful thing. And that's why we should turn this conversation around and argue uh-huh. for, well, of course this thing is going to be a hit. Right. Wait, what? 
you're 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 messing with my brain. It is okay. So now it is a, a surefire hit. Yeah, you're saying the way he builds your anticipation over this long opening section, these verses, and then finally gives you the catharsis of the chorus. That payoff is so powerful that it's it's the reason you want to keep listening to the song over and over again. That's exactly right. There's real emotional weight in this song, and we feel it from that build from verse to verse and the angst of, I'm pissed off that you broke up with me, and gosh, what's going on? Like, why did you have to write me out of your life? When you finally get to the chorus, you're like, oh, that, oh, that release. It just, it is so powerful. And the song becomes spirited here. The chords finally change. The vocal register shoots up an octave. Right. Mm-hmm. We're no longer in that simmering low voice. Mm-hmm. When we see the music video, Gautier has gone from pursed lips to just like wide mouth, letting it all out. Now, there's actually probably another reason why this song shouldn't have connected. And Gautier was actually aware of himself. He told the Herald Sun that when he wrote this song, he felt like the guy's story felt weak, Hmm. that there was nothing interesting to add after the second verse. Like, all right, you're bummed that someone broke up with you. That's it. (laughs) And so he starts experimenting and realizes that, well, this this needs to be a duet. This is going to be a song Uh, where you're going to get the other person's point of view. And that is yeah. where the hero of this song comes in, which is Kimbra. Cool. Now and then I think of all the times you screwed me over But in me believing it was always something that I And then we get this emotional change into this beautiful bridge. I mean, that moment when Kimber enters is like takes my breath away, honestly. Uh, and especially the first time you listen, you're not expecting it. Right. And she's such, such, such an incredible performer. And that's, I mean, that's interesting that, that Gauthier felt the song was missing something. And that was a pretty, that was a pretty astute solution that he, he, he struck on. Because it turns the song into something much more relatable and much more universal when you have these dual perspectives. Right. It's not a song about simmering male rage. It's actually Mm -hmm. about, hey, dude, you were actually the jerk and you need to get over your own emotions. And that is an amazing payoff uh, when we finally hear her side of the story. Now and then I think of all the times you screwed me over. And by the way, I also think all of those like nursery rhymey qualities and the xylophone and silly plucky sample makes sense because it's almost as if the music the whole time has been mocking the guy who's been simmering and really we're waiting the whole time to hear the other perspective. I'm curious after reflecting 10 years on, do you have any other favorite moments? I always really loved that line, have your friends collect your records. some reason the specificity of that uh yeah. just really like cut like a knife you know that idea of like oh these this was our music collection and now you're taking back your vinyl that's like 
I don't know. I really relate to that sentiment. Well, I think it's because it is one of those rare songs where perhaps the reason why it's such a success is that it kind of bucks all the rules. It Mm. has these specificities that are, of course, immensely relatable. But this is a duet where the duet doesn't happen until three quarters of the way through the song, basically. Funny. And it was such a big hit that it was transformative, not just for us in our young years in 2011, Mm. but for the performers as well, Gautier and Kimbra, for both the Grammy winners. Mm. They took paths you might not expect. Gautier has largely stayed out of the spotlight, done some really interesting musical archival work even. And Kimbra, she was a developing artist at this point from New Zealand. And this was a breakout moment for her when she had the opportunity to go down many roads. Mm. And I had the opportunity to speak with Kimbra about making that song and what this moment meant for her career. My conversation with Kimbra right after the break. Shout out to AstroPro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you have allergies, then I've got a familiar scenario for you. You wake up on a beautiful spring morning and peek outside to get a feel of that nice breeze, but then you start to feel a little tickle in your nostrils. That tickle is the spring air telling you to go be a hermit and avoid the outside because you'll soon be a sniffling, sneezing mess. But don't listen to it. Allergies suck, but a good nasal spray makes all the difference. I personally learned that I suffer from adult onset allergies, and it's a real bummer. But a good allergy med makes all the difference for my ability to go out in the springtime to smell magnolias, my favorite flower. If you also want relief quickly to get back to breathing in the spring air, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hi, this is Kimbra. So you're at the beginning of your career, just moved from your home in New Zealand to Australia to start working on your album. How did you link up with Gautier? I had a manager who was helping me find the co-producer for my first record. And this is the moment when I was also listening to a lot of Gautier. He was my favorite artist at the time. And I remember saying to my manager, whoever produced this record, I want to work with them. They did such a great job. They, they hmm. you know, it's such a fantastic album. Francois, Gautier's producer, was really, you know, excited at the idea and we began making my first record, Vowels, probably around my 18th birthday. (laughs) It comes close to completion uh, around the time that Gautier asks me to perform on somebody I used to know. Mm. My record is probably in mixing at this point or getting close to being put out. I think I'd already put out the single Settle Down. All of this being self-released through my management company, so there's no label involved at this point. It wasn't until I was 21 that I signed to Warner Brothers. They were on board from hearing the song Settle Down and they heard about me through the internet. The My, my Space was the kind of big thing then. <laughs> and it was funny, you know, to have my career already in an incubation phase for years before meeting Gautier and then a finished record, a record label, signing me all before that hit even came on the scene. So I'm very lucky in that respect because I didn't have to scramble to pull an album together after the success of that song. It was done and it was ready to go. Take me into the session recording the song. How does it come together? Wally 
uh, Gautier um, contacted me through Francois about performing on the song. He, he made it clear that he had been looking for the right female partner for the song, the right vocalist who would capture the emotion. He wasn't having that much luck. He, he had tried out a few people, but it didn't feel right. I mean, Wally has such strong vision, he knows exactly what he's looking for. Mm. So he thought he would try it with me, and he brought his microphone over to my house. I had a studio set up in my bedroom in Melbourne. He set up the mic, and he gave me some some insight on the song, what he was wanting to capture from it. He helped me kind of find a place in my own life that I could relate to the lyric and sing it from a place of real authenticity. And I did a takedown. He gave me feedback. I did another takedown. He gave me some more thoughts. And I'd say maybe, I don't know, like four or five more takes. I mean, we didn't work that hard on it in terms of overworking the vocal, over, you know, multiple sessions over and over. It was, something was captured on that day. Mm. He went away, continued to work on it. I thought no more about it, really. I mean, I was excited that mm. I met Gautier and got to hang out with him, but the song itself I, I thought was, was good. I knew it was special, but I, I honestly did think it was going to be like a track number six ballad on the record. Like, you know, he would have a big song that would be like fast and this would just be the like kind of the slow burner on the record. And I was like, cool, I'm going to be on like a B-side record for Gautier, you know, um, <laughs> not to down, you know, downplay the song. It's an amazing song, but I just, I guess it's funny when record label people tell me like, I always saw it coming. I knew it immediately when I heard the song and I'm like, well, damn, <laughs> you knew more than me because I didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it is a, it's a, it's a very curious hit because yeah, it's a very slow burn. It's only two choruses. The mm -hmm. first chorus takes over a minute to get to like, it's not the thing that you expect is going to be the no. breakout smash no. kind of thing. And it's also unusual in that as the featured artist on the track, you come in very late to the song, but you're also the yeah. hero of the song. <laughs> the song could not happen without your verse because that is the entire payoff of the experience of it. <laughs> yeah, that is wild. Yeah, it, it was really cool when I got the vocal sent back and got to hear it as an entire piece. And, and I think at that point I started to feel like this might be a special moment, but I still never really had any idea even on the day of the music video <laughs> I um you know I yeah. still didn't know what it was going to be at that point and neither did Wally we really had no idea um and it sounds cliche but um it's the truth <laughs> what was the inflection point where all of a sudden things start to change where this is not just feeling like a b-side to you but something is happening here it's hard to really recall the exact moment I was on tour so heavily over the time that the song was blowing up. Mm. I was all over the world doing tours with um, not only Gautier, but then a world tour with Foster the People and my own shows all around America and, and Europe. So I think the moments where it would hit me, where I would have time to digest it, were maybe coming through the gates at Heathrow and being welcomed into London and thinking to myself, we have a number one song in this country right now. You know, we're, we're mm. here, we've just landed and our <laughs> song is top of the charts and... No one knows. We're just walking through the airport and <laughs> the song is playing in the airport. And we're just, you know, in moments like that where you get in a cab in Indonesia or something and it's playing or you hear a remix, you know, someone's saying from India that they're hearing it. It's a slow burn of, of realizing the phenomena it's become. It wasn't like a moment. I mean, I guess the Grammys would have been that moment um, that I realized it had connected um, so yeah. widely. Do you remember where you were for the Grammy nomination announcement? Oh, man. You know, I wish that I could. This is one of the saddest parts of 
coming to my age in this career now is when you look back, you you don't remember a lot. I don't know if it's different for different artists, but I have a sadness that I <clears throat> didn't write down more. Or maybe I did. Maybe I'll need to go back to journals and, and, and look at it. But I think life as a 20-something-year-old, you know, is so full of so much drama and so much, you know, there's just so much going on in your romantic life. There's you know, my career was taking off, but I was kind of hesitant to even let that in because I, I'm very weary of success. I know that it can be gone in a heartbeat. So I guess I kind of resisted it a lot. And I I, mm. I was being told to move to LA and had a lot of pressure to kind of be the next big thing. And I, I felt a new rebellious spirit in me where I kind of didn't want to follow all the rules that everyone had laid out. And I don't know if I've I haven't blocked out parts of it. I mean, the day that I was nominated for a Grammy with Gautier was an amazing day, but I can't tell you where I was because I just I just don't have that kind of memory for those things. It's blurry <laughs> and it really makes me realize just how how busy I was and how probably unnatural it was <laughs> to mm. be that not burnt out, but but kind of um moving that fast through the world. You certainly must remember going to the Grammys, what was your experience there and what happened? I was very excited to be in the same room as my idols. I mean, it's a very crazy experience to look around and, you know, in the same row that you're sitting in, be looking down at Beyonce, Adele, Jennifer Lopez. I mean, they were all sitting together. Rihanna behind me is Brittany Howard from Alabama Shakes. In front of me is Frank Ocean. I mean, it's just an incredible moment to just be in the presence of people that made you um, want to do what you do. I had no expectations of winning the Grammy. I thought it was incredible that we were nominated. We hadn't been asked to perform at the Grammys and I kind of took that as a sign that maybe we wouldn't win it, you know? Mm-hmm. I just thought it's too crazy that we would win it. And I think he felt the same. I think we were both there to just enjoy the moment, you know? We didn't expect to win. We were just excited that we were yeah. going to be part of the event. Do you recall the moment of the reading of the names in that, like, particular 30 seconds? Now, that part I remember very well. What were you feeling? So Prince walked to the stage, and, <laughs> I mean, I just can't explain what it's like to see someone who's had such a huge influence on your life standing in front of you with an envelope in their hands that contains your name, you know, like they, they, they <laughs> might say your name or they're going to say your name because you're nominated, you know? And so that moment of the, the nominations being called out was very unreal, I guess. You know, we had Janelle Monet, Frank Ocean, Taylor Swift, Kelly Clarkson. I mean, there was, yeah, the Black Keys, a lot of incredible people were all nominated for the same award. And <laughs> then comes our name and um, then he says, I love this song. And the Grammy goes too. Oh, I love this song. So everyone's like, what is he talking about? And then he says, somebody that I used to know by Gautier and Kimbra. Somebody that I used to know, Gautier. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a blur from there. All I remember is just being on stage and just gazing at him and kind of looking out at the audience and seeing a standing ovation of everyone in that room. <laughs> Beyonce. <laughs> I mean, it was just incredible for a girl from Hamilton, New Zealand, you know. I got on the mic to thank Wally, of course, for helping me be a part of the song. And then I just had to say thank you to Prince. I feel unbelievably blessed to have been a part of the song and I couldn't have shared it with someone more amazing than this artist that you see here. (laughs) And thank you to Prince. He was the man that 
inspired both of us to even start doing what we're doing. So, yeah, I felt really good about that. I, I didn't really feel like doing a long list of, you know, people to thank. It just seemed clear to me. It was, it was about those two men on stage for me. So, yeah. What do people not understand about what happens behind the scenes after that award? I know a lot happens, and I think I was aware of it. But one thing to understand is I, I am so invested in the work that I do that I am often thinking primarily about that. So the show that I've got to do that night, the show that I've got to do tomorrow, the album that I'm working on. I was aware that things were changing, that there was a buzz around my name now and there was the ability for me to reach out to people and have them know who I was immediately and the kind of notoriety it brings. But I also didn't get too caught up in it. I didn't feel like it served me at the time to let that impact the work that I was doing. I always felt that the work was the most important thing, especially if I wanted to have a career beyond somebody that I used to know. Mm -hmm. It was very important that I put a lot of time and energy into my own records. And I had an opportunity with the second album to be quite bold and quite daring because I knew that I would have the reach that I didn't have before. I could reach out to people that maybe wouldn't have clicked the email in the inbox, you know, and unless they'd seen that they knew the name. Sure. And, and, and so that gave me a lot of, I guess I used that notoriety from the Grammys to kind of <laughs> pull together a really crazy cast of, of people for my second record. I think that the main thing I felt was an immense pressure to follow it up. And that's like what, you know, that's what every record label wants. You know, I was on the Warner Brothers roster. Now it's time to put out a hit that's going to blow that one out of the water and become the next big thing. And that's not necessarily what I had planned for my career. I mean, I, I was ready to have a sustainable, long career. If success came, that's great. But the idea of just making a record with a hit just because I had had a hit and that was the next thing to do, it, it really didn't inspire me very much. And it was a lot of pressure. So I, I kind of decided to do it my way. And that really consisted of telling my A&Rs at Warner Brothers to trust me and that I want to make a record with Rich Costi, who had produced bands like Interpol, Mew, The Mars Volta, Big Mixer for Diplo and just a lot of crazy stuff. And I said, trust me, like, mm. let me make a record I really want to make. Let me bring in Matthew Bellamy from Muse, Mark Foster from Foster the People, Thundercat, Daniel Johns from Silverchair. Trust me with these people. I think I can make something special. Yeah. I hoped there would be a single on there or something of commercial success, but I didn't go into it with that mindset. Yeah. I went into it with the mindset that anything is possible. And that's something that I learned from winning the Grammy because <laughs> if a girl from New Zealand can come to New Australia, be asked by someone to sing the second verse of a song, have no idea that it's going to blow up and then have it hit number one in 18 countries and win a Grammy by her idol, Prince, for a song that doesn't even have a chorus until after two minutes mm -hmm. and is the most unlikely pop song in the world, well, then you bet that I'm going to get experimental with this next record because that's the most experimental story I've ever heard, you know? It's like the most unlikely hit becomes <laughs> like, it just made me dream bigger and it made me think the possibilities are endless. Like, why would I go and make a cookie-cutter hit after that when what I just had success with was something so obscure. Like I just believed in the power of possibility after that moment. Mm. Is there a song off that record, The Golden Echo, that you feel captures that vibe that you're going for? I feel like every single song on that record is a microcosm of that <laughs> idea of me like embracing pop, but also like 
gut punching it too and being like, no, I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, w- when you have Thundercat playing bass for you, there's no way that it's going to stay simple. Yeah. I think, I think the song that Daniel Johns from Silverchair, myself and Thundercat made together is a really good example of my kind of like anti-pop pop. But also, I don't know, I mean, we made a really strange song on that album called 90s Music, which was the first single off the Golden Echo, I guess. So it was probably the furthest thing that I could ever do from somebody I used to know. Um, and, you know, I'm sure people will say that that was commercially the wrong choice, but I don't know. I love that the fan base I have have followed me through all my weird twists and turns. I think it's really special. It's like that to me is love, you know, when, when, a, when a fan base lets an artist like just do what they're excited about and they follow them through it. It seems to be part of your musical mission. I was reading an interview that you did with Junkie back in the day, and you said that you believe that pop music shouldn't dumb people down. You think that pop should make people smarter. Prince did that. We don't even realize how deep Prince was going on those records. The greats always do that. They're always sneaking in things that the mystics have been saying forever. But they do it in a way that is um, only noticeable on multiple listens. And that's great pop when you can go back to it time and time again. Pop that makes you dumber is often stuff that actually doesn't get better with multiple listens. It kind of gets more and more annoying. Mm. Um, Mm. And you know, I have no problem with various types of music, but I do believe that the music industry and the, and the pop industry sells people short in terms of what it assumes of them. It assumes that people can only hang on to a song with only two chords and repetitive melody that goes a hundred times over. And like, it's just not true. Like people mm. can wait two minutes for a chorus. They can get invested in a storyline and not need side-chaining bass and auto-tune to get engaged like they they can find ways to deep investment in music through other forms and somebody i used to know is a perfect example of that in 2018 you put out a record called primal heart and one of the singles off of that is top of the world where it seems you're nodding to those pressures but also maybe even toying with them Yeah, Top of the World kind of flirts with both ideas, you know. There is an intoxication to fame and success and wealth. I don't know, in many ways I had a figure like Donald Trump in my head when I was making that song. I thought, like, look at this person who starts with, you know, probably intentions to make some sort of difference, whether or not that is, you know, for better or for worse, but um, gets higher and higher on their own story wind up at the top and realize there's no one else there. It's as lonely as fuck up there. (laughs) And Top of the World was for me an interesting meditation on other artists' careers or other politicians' careers, you know, and also a little bit of my own that, you know, there isn't so much Mm. at the top that is more important than what you find um, just in the ordinary movements of life. I haven't experienced 
you know, the kind of fame that some people have and success and notoriety and, you know, I, I consider my, my experience a fraction of that, but it's enough to kind of get a gauge on what the mu- how the music industry can change when there's that kind of fame and, of course, you know, money involved. I'm still wrestling with it. I still don't know how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of learning to do over that time. It was my 20s. My 20s, I was, I was uh, part of a, a number one song and, and that's already a really tough time for someone <laughs> on top of that to have the pressure of, of that kind of success. It was a lot, but I feel lucky that it didn't make me collapse and, and give in to pressure and do something I didn't want to do, mm. but rather it pushed me to do what I wanted to do tenfold. Mm because I had seen how it had worked for Gautier and, you know, and I felt this courage um, from being affirmed on the world level like that to be like, look, let me just do my thing. They obviously connect with my voice. Mm. Let me just go where I'm feeling like I want to (laughs) go. What made you recognize that internal tension of both seeing the fame monster in other people, witnessing it within yourself, feeling like that song needed to be put out into the world. Where did that come from? Again, I I, I witnessed it in others before I saw it in myself. And that's often how my writing works. I'll write about it sort of another person. And then as I'm Mm. writing it, I realize, oh, all these things live inside me, you know? And that's why we connect through music because we see ourselves Mm. in the song. Mm. The desire to win, the, the desire to be on top is pretty human. And when you are given that place of achievement, it can be intoxicating. And I Hmm. actively fought against that as it was happening to me, even to the point where I moved to a farm in Los Angeles in Silver Lake, right by the reservoir. I lived with five sheep and goats and 20 free range chickens and I had an outdoor kitchen and I just had a very strange hippie life. In LA, days after I'd received the Grammy, I moved to this place. I mean, I was doing interviews from there and they're like, are you living in Hollywood now? (laughs) You must be living, got a nice place in Sunset Boulevard. I'm like, no, I'm living on a farm. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like I'm feeding the chickens right now. (laughs) Um, I don't know, it just was so much more interesting to me to like live on the sidelines of it than live Mm. inside it. Yeah, the intoxication of um, notoriety that is talked about on top of the world is really just a longing to be known, a longing to be heard, and a longing to, you know, I empathize with the character on top of the world. I don't see her as just a throwaway, superficial character. I see her as someone who is very human, and we, we deny that that's I mean, I think that's the Instagram culture too. Like we're, we're hungry for validation. We're hungry yeah. for the likes and the followers. And I'm on top of the world. You know, it's an idea that is both energizing and fantastically inspiring to be on top. You know, it's, it's an amazing. We've all had moments of feeling like we've reached a pinnacle in our mm-hmm. careers or our world. But it's also, it's, it is threatening to the things that are most important to us. And I wanted to convey that in the, the song, you know, that we can't forget where we come from. And it can be very lonely too, to, mm. to become that isolated by your work that no one really knows how to get in anymore because you've created a bubble yeah. that is so impenetrable. I feel like it comes across musically in that, A, you're exceptional at modulating your voice into these sort of like other caricatures thank you and simultaneously the production choices that you make they're a little winky in that like you're it's clear that you're sort of like pointing to different genres of pop mm-hmm. sort of deviating from other things that you might be doing but it's still you so there's there is that i think I, i'm hearing that internal tension yeah 
in how you're singing, in how you're producing it. Yeah. It's you're in it no matter how much it might be thinking about some other characters. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the lyric in there that always hits me hardest is they built me up to be beaten. I mean, I always think about that with the world of um, pop success. You know, it's like people get shot to the top, but then, you know, they they just they just turn it over right and there's just a new person and it's just and it's like i always wanted to be an artist that had longevity and and stuck around you know but that idea of being built up to be beaten was um i i found that resonant at the time because people also like to rip people apart when they when they get success and when they you know and that's a whole nother side of um success that doesn't get talked about enough as well is just how hard it can be to be analyzed um for one facet that you show the world which is only one side of who you are right Right. and uh yeah so there's a whole lot of stuff in there and i i often deal with my emotions by creating a character where i can project everything onto that character and some of it's true and some of it's made up you know but it's like a way that i can get out all my emotions on that topic this dialogue on fame kind of comes full circle this year in that you are once again nominated for a Grammy through your collaboration on Jacob Collier's record, Jesse Volume 3. You have this song called In My Bones, also with Tank and the Bangas. This is a song I really enjoy. In fact, it's, it's a record that I put on in the evening sometimes when my kiddo's eating dinner and he <laughs> goes bonkers. Aww. Like the and, and and also, you know, full circle here, it it has such nods to Prince mm-hmm. and his styles of production. Tell me about the creation of In My Bones. How did this song come together in this collaboration? Jacob and I met probably over the internet. I meet most people that way, just like Maybe I talk yeah. about their music online or they talk about mine and then we reach out and mutually fangirl over each other. So I think that's how it happened. And he'd been very vocal about having studied my records. I mean, not just listen to them, but he could pick out tracks from Vows, you know, even down to the second, tell me the part that he liked. I mean, it was just incredible <laughs> to have someone be that inspired and, and moved by the music and someone of his caliber and such a musical prodigy. So he asked me, you know, we have to make a song together. Can you meet me in the studio and let, let's do it? Um, I was living in New York at the time. He came out especially to meet me there. Um, we jumped in the studio. It was actually similar to the Gautier collaboration in the sense that, like, that shit happened in half a day, you know? It was, like, in and out. And um, How in the world, though? Because I've never heard... I mean, the kind of harmonic movement and Yeah, complexity. but that dude, that dude hears it all. He's already got it in his head. <clears throat> so he's just singing it to you. He just, ah, uh, sing this, ah, uh, ah. Uh, sing this wow. uh, sing this he's just getting me to sing it all and then he puts it all together <laughs> it's like a very amazing thing to watch and I brought my whole spaceship of gadgets my chaos pads and loopers and I, I set up and would kind of just play ideas for him and he would sort of sample parts of me and that's how we got a, a, a mood going mm. and then you know we started jumping into the the lyric and we're sitting on the ground together humming and hying and writing in notebooks and you know we're we're, we're just kind of going where the music takes us and it, it's not a realized idea yet it's a sort of it's fragments of ideas that are all running around and haven't found their 
relationship to each other yet. And that's what Jacob did after I left the studio. Of course, he went away and made it all into this work of art and sent it back. And I was like, oh, Lord, <laughs> this is this is something else. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's a really it's a really fun one. And he's turned out to be one of my closest friends in the industry these days. So that's um, also really nice when, yeah, when that happens. So when talent sees talent. We got, we got to speak with him a few months back and you know it's always delightful when you talk to someone who happens to be maybe even nicer than they are talented i know and his talent is beyond <laughs> i know <laughs> it's ridiculous right i imagine that your experience of finding about the grammy nomination this time around and your expectations around it must be very different multiple years later how are you feeling about this man i think you'll get it I mean, <laughs> that's my feeling, but I mean, Jacob is such a force. I, I, I like, I'm such a, I'm an awe of his talent. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I, I also am like, I can feel like he might get it, but I'm also like, I still have no idea. Like the music industry baffles me. Like I'm like, <laughs> I just, you, you know what I mean? But in a good way, like in, in the way where I'm like, huh, I don't know, anything's possible. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like my expectations are different now um, to how they were back then. I'm sort of like, yeah, I think things are changing and music is changing and people's mm. desires and music are changing. And um, I'm super stoked to be up for another Grammy with him. It's like, yeah, it's, it's beautiful that the work that I continue to do with my friends, you know, with the people that I love is resonating with a larger audience. And I'm just, you know, super grateful and it inspires me to work harder on my own records as well. It gives me impetus you know you seem super level-headed about it it's like whatever <laughs> happens happens is kind of what i'm gathering yeah whatever happens happens i mean the grammys are cool but you know we all know that's an amazing record whether or not it wins <laughs> you know what right. i mean so right. i think right. yeah it's uh, i've always seen awards as kind of like um they're cool but they don't become the bearers of truth on whether something has value it's a not unproblematic institution and so yeah there's nothing more validating, and yet it's also problematic enough that we can't exactly. put that much weight into it. Exactly. Yeah, you get it. So a lot has changed for you over your career, including I'm thinking of a song of yours called Right Direction. Mm. They say all roads lead back to home. That ain't where I want to go. They say all roads lead back to home, but that ain't where I want to go. And being worried about running in the right direction. Mm. We're in this very strange moment where you've been led back to home. One of mm. the few places on earth that has handled the pandemic relatively well and where life is relatively normal despite being in lockdown at this exact moment. Mm. How did it feel to make the choice to move back home? What led you there? What's going on? Well, to be clear, I haven't moved back home. I'm here for a TV show that I'm doing out here, mentoring young artists who are working to be the next music sensation from New Zealand. <laughs> I am here for another three weeks. Then I return back to New York mm. to spend time with my loved ones and work on my album campaign for my fourth record. We're shooting the front cover. Then I return back to New Zealand for another round of shooting for this TV show. That means quarantining again for two weeks. So that'll be a month in quarantine all up. <laughs> I then return back on June 3rd um, to New York, which is still my home. I live upstate now, 
Yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah, but New Zealand will always be home home. And I think that's yeah. what you're getting at is, you know, that's the place that I always come back to. And yeah, they say all roads lead back to home. That's not where, you know, where I want to go, where I want to be. I think I've been running a long time, you know, running hopefully in the right direction. I mean, we're all guessing, you know, and I think it's been beautiful to return home now and be an adult. I left when I was so young and mm. um, to kind of see everything with, with clear eyes and reconnect with friends that I had in high school. And now we're, you know, it's, so much years later mm. a lot has changed this pandemic has done a lot for me it's shaken us all you know it's really remind us reminded us of the fragility of life and i do feel like a different artist coming out the other side and you know getting to come back home for a period of time has been part of that incubation and rejuvenation before i um get back into it all for my fourth record you said that you're working on your fourth record are you ready to share what some of your vision for that music is going to be? I'm so excited about the fourth record. I wish I could just put it out tomorrow. We live in a pretty crazy world, you know, and nothing is as it was. So the release date um, is unsure, you know, I, I don't know. But I know I will be putting new music out this year. Um, plan on releasing a music video and a, a song, a single. So I'm really excited to at least just share something um, and, and hopefully the record will be out, you know, certainly by next year. So, um, or, you know, next year, <laughs> let's just say that to be safe. I'm back on the road in October, provided that COVID doesn't get worse. Right. I, uh, you know, plan on being back on the road in an even fuller capacity in January. So, you know, a lot is going to be changing again, back into that lifestyle again, which will be strange. Um, but I've never felt more motivated, inspired, and invested in the music I'm making than this record. Mm. Um, I'm co-producing it with Ryan Lott from Sun Lux. I don't know if you're familiar with that band. Very creative. They're amazing. Yeah, so it's it sounds a lot like me and him <laughs> like when people are like what does it sound like i'm like sounds like kimber and sunlux <laughs> which i think is you know i think it's going to be cool i think people are going to dig it and um it's it's so fun to work with someone who doesn't do like super banging pop music but like make him do banging pop music <laughs> but with his palette you know what i mean it's like <laughs> i've always wanted to hear that weirdo like do a pop album and it's exactly what i was hoping it would be it's like really strange industrial sounds and like ethereal, beautiful cinematic landscapes, mm. but pop songs, you know? And um, I can't wait for people to hear it. I don't think it sounds like anything else right now. So it's exciting, man. That sounds just about right for a Kimber record. Uh, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be surprised if you brought in only the biggest pop songwriters in the world to work with. You, you, gotta, you gotta pull in the most experimental person to meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah. In addition, you're launching a course with Soundfly. You're, you're very thoughtful about production, gear, composition. You just have a lot of detail. You're sharing a course with people coming up. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I'm super excited about this course. It's um, focused mainly on vocals as an instrument. So, you know, from the very inception of that idea, which is in the body, you know, you, you sing with the body and we talk a bit about that, to how you, to produce your vocals, to how to mix your vocals and how to use hardware and software to really get the most out of your instrument. And I am really passionate about production and, 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 and sharing my knowledge as an engineer and producer just because I, I, I think we need more women in these fields. Um, but also because 
it's so in- inherent to what I do. It's not just like, oh, I have this side hustle I also like to engineer. It's like, no, I write as I produce. Like I, the, I mix as I write. I, you know, it is all a holistic. Um, there is no compartmentalization for me between those things. They're happening consecutively. So for me to share that part of my process is to share my songwriting process and to mm-hmm. share how I even perform and how even the way I use my hands is because I'm visual and I'm thinking of waveforms and I'm thinking of EQ and frequency and this helps me to get in that mindset to use my hands. So yeah, it's, it's fun to share that stuff and um, I'm excited to see what people take away from it. It has been an absolute joy speaking with you. Thank you, you so much for sharing your experiences. Absolutely. It was great to talk to you too. Switched on Pop is produced by Bridget Armstrong, Nate Sloan, and me, Charlie Harding. We're engineered by Brandon McFarland and this week by Bill Lance. Illustrations by Iris Gottlieb and social media by Abby Barr. Nishat Kurwa and Hannah Rosen are executive producers and we're a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network and a production of Vulture. Check us out on social media at Switched on Pop on Instagram and Twitter. We're posting articles. We're posting videos. We're posting highlights from our conversations. There's a lot of fun stuff that you're going to want to check out and we love hearing from you. So come find us there and hit us up. One of the things you'll be hearing this week is a course that Kimbra is doing with Soundfly. If you want to get into the depths of vocal production and you make music yourself, go check it out. We'll post a link to it in our show notes as well as on social media. And next week, we're going to be back with our favorite moments from the 2021 Grammys. What happened? What went down? Everything you need to know. Check it out next Tuesday. Switch it on Pop. And until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. One final shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. You know what's a terrible question? What's your favorite part of having nasal allergies? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Luckily, you might be able to find some relief with Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's astaproallergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.